Each of us has a unique career story to tell. For some, these fly high like rocket launches. For others, they're more like the game of shoots and ladders with advances and setbacks along the way. Either way, we learn countless lessons from these experiences. And that's what we put into the spotlight here at Career Sessions Career Lessons. Join discussions featuring a variety of guests sharing their stories of ups and downs, as well as the secrets of their success and what drives them to continue moving forward. We break down the tools and resources that will help you establish your dream career and realize your professional goals. Here's your host, J.R. Lowry. I'm J.R. Lowry, and this is Career Sessions, Career Lessons, which is brought to you by Pathwise.io. Pathwise is dedicated to helping you live the career you deserve, providing career coaching, content, courses, and community. Basic membership is free, so visit Pathwise and join today. Today, my guest is Matt Kirsch. Matt is the CEO of OG Life Lab, which he co-founded in 2018 to help people in business learn the essential skills that drive performance and life satisfaction that the schools just don't cover. More generally, Matt describes himself as someone who loves innovative products that make a difference for humans. He has started, run, and sold companies to Apple and Microsoft. While at Microsoft, Matt ran MSN.com, which was then one of the top three websites on the planet. He was also CEO of the Blue Planet Run Foundation, a nonprofit focused on delivering water to the developing world. Earlier in his career, he was the CEO of eShop, which was one of the very first e-commerce platform companies. Matt has served on the boards of numerous public, private, and nonprofit organizations, and he lives in Northern California. Matt, welcome. Thanks for joining me on the show today. Lovely to be here. Yeah, I appreciate your time and appreciate our mutual friend, Danny Warshay, introduced us. Let's start with your current work. So give our audience an OG Life Lab. So OG is a leadership learning company. And really the way we think about it is we're here to help people gain the skills that at least in my estimation and our estimation end up driving a lot of the results and the outcomes at work and also outside of work, but that people don't pick up in the course of their professional training or college or what have you. And so leadershipy stuff like how to lead, how to manage, how to manage projects, emotional intelligence, decision-making, mm-hmm. diversity issues, how to listen, things of this ilk that in our estimation are kind of ignored or given short shrift and that we think are really the glue that ties everything together. So that's our passion. Was there a particular spark that led to starting OG? There were a couple things that led to it for me, and then eventually finding my co-founders who were on similar paths. For me, one was when I left Microsoft, I was running the main online business. And there were just a set of interactions where we were working across all of Microsoft's consumer businesses to figure out a plan to go forward. And I felt like I was working with people who were incredibly smart, incredibly driven, certainly had all the resources and kind of market power you could ever want. I wanted to do really great work. And yet I felt we just Mm. didn't know how to play together and work together and make things happen. Not for a lack of interest. We just didn't know how. It just, you went to school and became a great coder or perhaps a great tech marketer, but you didn't learn how to do those larger things. And so that really stuck with me because I felt like here we were one of the most powerful companies in the world. Yeah, We could make things happen. 
but we couldn't make things happen. So that was one thing. And then the other thing was after I left Microsoft and spent a lot of time with my wife raising our kids and building a house, and I sat on a lot of corporate boards and I kind of zoomed out in a lot of ways from the narrowness of execution. And I just touched a lot of different parts of kind of my community and my life and was seeing that same kind of Microsoft stuff, but even larger, like being on boards of public companies and didn't really know how to drive strategy or building a house and trying to get things done and people kind of talking about fairy tales about the schedule that didn't make sense. And right. over time, I really felt like, wow, this is a bundle of stuff and you shouldn't have to basically win a weird cosmic lottery to have the motivation and the access and the time and the money to learn these things. A classic example is decision-making. I mean, mm. we we all make decisions all day. It rules our life. Literally, it determines the outcomes of our lives. I've been teaching decision-making in various forms for you know over five years. I don't know anybody who's been formally trained in it. It's crazy. It's like incredibly central to our life outcome. So those things kind of together got me to feel like, wow, this is a huge missing piece. And then I met my co-founder, Andrea Hoban, and my two co-founders from Yale University, Mark Bracken and Robin Stern. And they were all working on similar paths, and, and we decided to do it together. So who are your typical customers, and what does a typical OG program entail for them? We've been fortunate to work with a lot of different kinds of organizations. They are organizations. It's usually either a leader in the business or somebody in the HR or learning department who are buying the program on behalf of some group of people. One of our best customers is Biosense Webster, which is part of Johnson & Johnson. So they, for instance, all of their field personnel get trained with our emotional intelligence program. It's just part of, if you want to be out in the field working with doctors and patients, then you need to have emotional intelligence. And so they all go through our program and, and that is now expanded beyond just the field personnel. We were working with Amazon, we're working with California State Parks, you know, it's all kinds of different situations. And a lot of these skills, it's funny, you know, if, if you just kind of go through some of the things I've mentioned, people often say, oh, it's really interesting decision-making. So who exactly would need decision-making? You're like, but he's not, you know, incarcerated. Right. I mean, who doesn't need decision-making skills? Uh, emotional intelligence. So what's the market there for that? Like people who aren't sociopaths, mm -hmm. you know, there's the market for that because we're all really ruled by emotions. So it really depends. Organizations have different ways they want to apply it. And our newest product is first-time managers. We call it OG mm -hmm. Foundations. And you know, it's for anybody who's the first five years of their management journey, really. Everybody needs to get the basic skill set and, and mostly yeah. they don't get it. It's very true. So what's the shape and size of the business today in terms of number of people and things like that? Yeah, the team's pretty small. When you include, you know, our software development team and everybody, it's about about 20 people in the company. Mm -hmm. We're definitely 21st century company in terms of, I mean, you know this and all, all the listeners know this. It's amazing how much you can get done with a small team today. So it's really fun for us. And we're working with clients you know, we're working with Amazon. It's one of the biggest employers in the world. So, you know, kind of from the biggest companies to the smallest organizations. So yeah. there's a lot of range and it's fun. Do you get a lot of people approaching you as individuals or is it all through companies? We do have people come in as individuals and you can 
just go to our website and put in a credit card and buy one of our programs so that there are folks who are so passionate and and self-starters and they know they want it. And they're always just great to have in the program because they bring a lot of enthusiasm. So it does happen. And I definitely think our dream is over time, as we're better at establishing in people's minds, the importance of this learning, that it will become something that's more appealing just to consumers. You think about it, you and I were talking before we started recording about sending kids to college and and Mm. the costs and complications of doing that. And my daughter recently, a year ago, graduated from college with a degree psychology and philosophy. So it turns out kind of as close as you can get in college to the stuff we're talking about. Right. But four years at a private school and she didn't get trained on how to make a decision. So over time, we hope that people will say, I need to learn how to make a decision. So I'll do an OG program and I can really master those skills. What are your goals for the next few years for the company? So we just launched our OG Foundations product for uh, first-time managers, and we're going to ship later this year a a product for more experienced leaders. Mm -hmm. And our goal, I think, really is just to get those in as many people's hands as possible. Obviously, that equates to sales, and that's good for the business, as I'm sure you appreciate fully. It's more about more than just how much can we sell. And for all of us, it's so incredibly rewarding to get it into people's hands And so we really are just eager to have many thousands of people going through the program because we've seen it with our existing programs. It changes people's lives. I sold my company to Microsoft. We were one of the first e-commerce platform companies. And I I sometimes say we made the world safe for online shopping. Okay, that's nice. It was nice. I mean, people built some nice businesses and it was a wealth creator. Selling stuff on the internet wasn't personally rewarding. It was a good business. Your work, I'm sure too. It's like when somebody goes through a program and says, I can't believe the changes I'm experiencing. Yeah. That's really rewarding. So we won't do that at scale. It's a good aspiration. Yeah. So you mentioned you, you, this isn't your first go around as an entrepreneur. You you jumped into it right at the beginning of your career. When you were back in school, did, did you see yourself becoming an entrepreneur or how did that emerge for you? It's so funny, our friend in common, Danny Worshay, he and I, we've known each other since fourth grade, I think. So he's one of my oldest and best friends. We did go to college together. And when I was in college, I had been, my dad is a retired surgeon and he had asked me to help him select a system to manage his office billing. This was the early eighties. So that was kind of wild, wild west. But even the 16 year old knew more than the grownups then about yeah. these crazy computers. So, so I got into it and that got me interested in what became our first company. And I was really just frankly tired of looking at crappy medical office software for my dad. And I just said, why don't me and my buddies at college write you some software? That was the starting point. And Danny actually was part of that business. And there was no support for entrepreneurship in college. To the extent the university supported us, it was that they gave us a basement concrete room to set up our tables and put our computers on. I mean, it was a nasty little place. Now Brown has, you know, Center for Entrepreneurship, a gleaming building on the main street with their own facilities and Danny's been teaching entrepreneurship there for, I think, 13 years or something. So there's a long way of saying like, I didn't know what an entrepreneur was. I wasn't thinking about being an entrepreneur. It wasn't a concept. It was simply, there was a problem, which my dad was looking at a lot of crappy software. And I was excited to help 
invent something that would be a cool solution to that problem. I'd say overall, that continues to be what motivates me is that there's some creative opportunity of making things and and loving to do it with other people. Today, people go to college and say, I want to be an entrepreneur, which blows my mind because that just wasn't a thing. No, it really wasn't a thing. How else do you think it's changed over the years, the world of an entrepreneurship relative to when you started that first company at Brown? Well, this may sound like the crotchety old man in me, but I think it goes to the point I was just making, which is because we were just doing it organically as a kind of creative response to a situation we saw, that really was our focus. Like we make the thing, how can we make the thing be good? How can we sell the thing? How do we sell more of the thing? We didn't really have this larger picture. There was Mm. no kind of stable of people building fortunes and recording stories about amazing successes. I mean, like you could literally count those stories on hand. Apple and Microsoft, VisiCalc, Lotus. There's just very few successes. We didn't have any notion like, oh, we could be just like that. Now, people who are into entrepreneurship, it's, hey, I can think of 500 people who've made significant fortunes. I want to do that. I want to build a big fortune. And so this is where the old man talk sounds like. It's just, to me, the effort is often kind of missing a kind of creative soul and spark that I felt like we had in the old days, because we just didn't have this notion of, oh, we're going to make a ton of money. Now you meet a lot of people who are in the game and you can tell they don't really care that much about the creative problem. They don't really care that much about the customer. They don't really care about pushing the ball forward. It's just more like, they're looking for gaps and how they can exploit them to cash in. And there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, it's perfectly ethical. It's just not as fun to me. Yeah. So that's the big change I see. Yeah, I w- would definitely agree with that. People have been starting companies since long, long ago, right? Certainly long before the era in which you started yours. I think certainly a much, much, much more established venture capital community. The schools are teaching it, as you mentioned earlier. So it's, it is an easier thing to get into than it was a generation ago. But then you see, you know, the people who come into it, as you say, with the expectation that, well, everybody else is making millions of dollars selling their business within 18 months. And that's my expectation. And of course leads to a certain amount of people who are just creating a business to sell a business, not necessarily to solve a, a real problem and to have a passion for what they're doing. And I don't know, it's a little sad in the, in the scheme of things. It's, I guess it's just a different form of selling your soul in the same way that people say working for a big bank or a big consulting firm is, is selling your soul. Yeah. I mean, you see these stories and we don't have to list them all, the kind of Sam Bankman fried stories and these other stories about people who really defraud and do it at great scale. And I think it's some level that's motivated by simply a belief that, hey, other people are cashing in massively. This kind of feels like what you have to do. It's working. So the goal is making money. It seems like if you just hype it enough, that'll work. And then you can get some exit and no one will be the worse for it. The thing is, when when I sold that first company that Danny and I worked on together, we sold it to a division of Apple for under a million dollars. We were overjoyed. I mean, this is 1989. We were really happy. I was 24 years old at the time. Now you'd be kind of like, what kind of loser? 
you sold out for that kind of money. But listen, yeah. we had a real product. We had real customers. They were buying it. They liked it. It was all compelling. The kind of numbers that we see today simply weren't possible. They did not ever occur. I'm not a big follower of pro sports, but there's a difference between pursuing a love for a sport and the fact that you could pursue the sport and get a $40 million a year contract. That just changes the sport. It doesn't mean the people aren't hugely talented. It doesn't mean they're not passionate about it. It doesn't mean a lot of them are doing it because they love the game. But there are some people for whom it's really about, hey, how do I get that payday? And that kind of changes it. I think the same thing happened in the entrepreneurial space. That being said, there's tons of amazing stuff, great products, exciting technologies, people working hard. But you were talking about the venture capital community. When I moved to California, which was over 30 years ago, you could list the venture capital firms. I mean, it wasn't some yes. kind of unknowable universe of names. They were all on Sand Hill Road. You could go from building to building, the end. I don't know. There's probably a hundred times more venture firms now. I mean, two yeah. orders of magnitude, it's exploded, which is really exciting. It's hard to take it in. You've done a lot of other things during the years. At one point, you were running a nonprofit Blue Planet Run Foundation. Yeah. Talk a little bit about that. So that was a hugely rewarding experience. So my friend and neighbor, Jin Zidel, guy who's my father's age, had this vision of having runners run around the world, relay style, mm -hmm. to promote the cause of safe drinking water. And he had managed to get Dow Chemical to contribute $10 million to put on this event, which was an act of complete magic that he managed to do that. And Jin and I were going for a walk one day and he was telling about his status with all that. <laughs> I think at that point he had raised the money and he had gone to the UN and had the like deputy secretary general of the UN announce with the CEO of Dow that this run was going to occur. So it was going to happen. At the time, Jin had a couple people working on it and a production firm. And I said, this is a huge enterprise. What's bigger than a running relay that goes around the world? You need like all this infrastructure and you need marketing. And, he, and Jin would have told you he wasn't really a business operations guy. He's like, I don't know how to do any of that stuff. I didn't even know that was stuff. So yeah, I volunteered to come in and, and run it for a little while with the hope of finding a CEO, but there wasn't really time to find a CEO. So I just ran it for a year and a half. And we had 21 runners run for 95 days that they ran 10 mile relays. It didn't stop for 95 days around the world. And you had runners meeting in the middle of Siberia and Mongolia and uh, all across the US. A runner would stop and another runner would take the baton and run another 10 miles and a really inspiring event. And it raised money and it raised awareness. And it was great fun for me to work with Jin and the whole team. And that became a software platform that helped organize and fund small-scale drinking water projects. So it was an amazing experience. And we did a, we also did a book that was about the water issue and about the run uh, yeah. that was uh, pretty well-received. So that was 16 years ago. Wow. Long time. And we still have the drinking water issues today. Yeah. I mean, drinking water is this crazy thing. In, the, in America, unfortunately, we're beginning to learn what it means. But at least the time we did the run, half of the hospital beds in the world were filled by people we're suffering from a waterborne illness. It's just a massive problem. And when you have water, you don't think about it. But when you're in the developing world, 
particularly in rural settings where it's very hard for the government to solve the problem. There's literally hundreds of millions of people who don't have water and also sanitation. I mean, people who don't have toilets and those are linked problems because if you don't have toilets, your water source isn't going to be clean. So it was, you know, not to make a tortured comparison and that attracted me because it felt like the biggest humanitarian issue. What if we could move the needle on that? Similarly for me with OG, I feel like this is kind of the biggest human issue that I could work on in terms of elevating people's lives. I sometimes say, we don't need better cell phones, we need better people. What I want is to make big moves that really help my life be better. And buying some tchotchkes on Amazon, it's nice and I enjoy my tchotchkes and I get some pleasure out of it. But you know what? If I can learn to manage my emotions, that's going to change my whole life. And if I can learn to make better decisions, it's going to change my whole life. I can learn. We work with this amazing professor at Hebrew University, Avi Kluger, who's an expert on listening. Now, I'm not going to put you on the spot, but I'm guessing you've never had formal training in listening. That's what this guy studies. And that's what we're teaching as part of our new manager training program. That's a a profound change in your life. So that's the kind of parallel between the Blue Planet work and and this work. You've referenced the time you spent at, at Microsoft. This was back in the late 1990s, right? So in the very, very early days of the web, as we yep. know it today, you were running MSN. What was it like to be at Microsoft in that era? <laughs> the comparison I sometimes make, and uh, with all these years past, hopefully it doesn't smart, but MSN was, it was at the time, the number three or number four web no destination in the world. So it got a lot of traffic. And I used to say it would be like if one guy owned a World Series winning baseball team and then a laggard basketball team. Now, this analogy is richer now because Steve Ballmer does own a basketball team. What kept happening, the internet guys were like the basketball team, and they kept sending all these World Series winning baseball players over to say, help us with basketball. And they kept saying, listen, don't tell me what you guys think makes sense. I won the World Series three times. I can tell you how to play this sport. And we kept saying, we're playing basketball. It's not like baseball. Like there aren't bases, you don't run. And it just kept being like, yeah, you keep telling me it's different, but it's not different. It's the same. And I won a World Series. So listen to me. So it was really difficult to be there then because obviously the internet business is radically different from the operating system and from the applications business. The only thing they have in common is they use software. Uh, But I remember a senior guy at an offsite once saying to me, why do we want to be in the ads business? The ads business is a niche marketplace, a niche industry. And I don't remember the exact numbers. I looked at him. I said, the niche you're referring to globally is 10 times bigger than the operating system business. So we can argue about whether that should be called a niche or not, but it's a lot bigger than what we do now. Yeah. But there was just no appreciation of that. It yeah. was just considered like a dirty, stupid business. Why would you want to be in that business? And that was the business I was in charge of. Right. So great people. I learned a lot. I still have lots of relationships. Some of my you know best friends are folks from that time, but definitely it was fish out of water. Yeah. In fairness. I mean, you think about everything that was market leading back in that era, right? In the late 1990s. There was like iteration after iteration after iteration of tools and search engines. And Google wasn't the first. It wasn't the second. It wasn't the third. It was a generation or 
to after a lot of those other players and the, the business models themselves, right? You know, your point about advertising, I mean, who would have thought that this whole thing would revolve so much around advertising, but it's become a huge business. It fueled a lot of the success of the Googles and the Facebooks. And I just think people had a hard time imagining that world, the world we now are deeply in the middle of would have been very, very difficult for almost anybody to imagine exactly how it would turn out back 25 years ago. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of failures we see politically and other places in business that are our failures of imagination. And what's really hard about it is there are usually some folks who, who do predict accurately and who stand on top of soapboxes and predict where they think things are going. In hindsight, say, look, I was five years ago, I was standing up and saying it would go this way and I was right. But the thing they forget is there were a hundred people on other soapboxes telling their version of what was going to happen and they were all wrong. And yeah. it's really hard to know which of the hundred people on soapboxes are right. And so I think when I was at, at Microsoft, it was clear that, I mean, crystal clear that advertising was going to be huge, that commerce was going to be huge, but that didn't mean we knew how it would work and where the value would lie. And Satya Nadella, who's running Microsoft now and who I got to work with quite a bit back there, I mean, he's been just great at, in the case of the cloud, embracing that reality, which is totally at odds with Microsoft's traditional business, right? Of selling people bits to put on servers. And here, all of a sudden, Microsoft's running their own servers and data centers. Yeah. And he embraced that reality and has built something really powerful. So they've done great. But yeah, there were days, I, I remember one time in particular where Steve Ballmer, who was at the time either president or CEO of Microsoft, he was quoted in a prominent Wall Street Journal article saying, we're not a media company. And I would literally like see him between meetings and he'd say, I know, but we're not. Our soul isn't media. I know you're going to give me a hard time. And I say, yeah. this entire building is a media business. What do you mean we're not in the media business? But it's not our soul. And it's like, I don't understand this existential kind of hand-wringing you're doing here. The bottom line is, if you're committed to the internet business, it is a media business. That's what it is. You know, I just think it was just kind of use that baseball and basketball analogy. It's like, we're a baseball team. I'm just not comfortable. Like, there's nothing wrong with basketball, but it's just not who we are. Yeah. And the truth was at the time they weren't. Anyways, it was a huge learning experience. I had a great time there. And at the end, my wife got pregnant with our first kid and just like a very easy decision to say, okay, now's the time for me to check out and do something else. So was it that time at Microsoft where purpose started to creep into the way you thought about how you wanted to make your career choices? That's a really interesting question. Uh, coincidentally, I was talking to our friend Danny's daughter yesterday, who's in town. And, yeah. and she's done a lot of entrepreneurial work herself. And we were right. we were talking about this. And I, I don't know if this resonates for you. Um, what I noticed that early in your career, it's just fun to do stuff. It's fun to start something. And you're like, I'm writing a business plan and I'm getting my website up and running. And it kind of doesn't matter that much what it is. It's just like fun. You know, certainly today, I would not be interested in doing software to manage medical practices. When I was, how old was I? 21 when I started my first company. Like, that was good enough for me. I just think as you get older, more and more, you're like, okay, I've done the thing. It's just like doing something isn't really, I'm a little more discriminating now. And 
you know, some people I think are looking for bigger challenges or just different challenges. I think for me, it became more of what is most rewarding is to do something that I think is positive for the world. There's all kinds of versions of that and people have to find their own path. But I, I definitely felt I want to do that kind of thing. And so when Jin had Blue Planet, I was really, I viewed it, to me, it was an opportunity. Wow, I get to drop into this thing. You've already raised all this money and have it launched the UN. I'm Wow, that's a great chance. And it wasn't too many years later that I started thinking about this mission. And I've often felt like this business is not a business that a 22-year-old would think of. You need some mileage yeah. uh, on the chassis before you start noticing the things and have these things become really emotionally powerful to you. Being married, like one of my first experiences was my wife and I did couples counseling. This is over 20 years ago. And it was just really foundational. It's like, yeah, I don't know how to be married. Like I don't yeah. have married any chops to be a good husband. And my parents, I think, have a really strong marriage, but me and my wife are not like me, my parents. So I, I can't replay that set of moves to the same effect. So it's like, yeah, there's something here to learn, and I don't know how I'm going to learn it. And and I th think we learned some of it in counseling. And that just started expanding. And as you suggested, there was like, okay, there's I feel there's a real purpose here. Like I'm seeing something that's important to me and I'm excited to go see what I can do about it. For someone who gets the advice of follow your passion, find your purpose. I mean, it plays a strong role for you, but how, what's your take on, on those sort of catchphrases as career guidance? I find them generally corrosive personally. I think of it as kind of the Disney version of Western culture I love Disney. Don't get me wrong. I got the first guy in line to go to Disneyland at any time. But I think it puts a lot of pressure on people. Mm -hmm. And I think it also sets some expectations that are unfair. I was reading, I'm a big tennis player and tennis fan. And I was reading some quote from Novak Djokovic saying, you know, my success is all about showing that you can achieve anything if you put your mind to it. You know what? Everyone can't be Novak Djokovic. It's mm -hmm. like the gap between him and me is not just that he wants it more. And it's not a character failing of mine or would not have been to say at 22, yeah, tennis sounds great, but I'm not going to choose that as a career because I don't think that's going to work for me. But I think when you say, just follow your passion and it'll all work out, then people feel like losers when they don't do it. That's the corrective all that being said, I think in the yin and yang of this duality, I do think it is about finding the thing that lights you up. And I've done quite a bit of teaching around purpose. And you know, the intersection that we taught was that it's the intersection between understanding your spark, you know, the thing that lights you up, right, and your values, the things that matter. And a good mm -hmm. a good synonym for values are importance. And so I love tennis. But it doesn't intersect with my values. There's like nothing important about tennis to me. It's fun. It's good exercise, but it's a hobby. But when push comes to shove, I will always work on my business instead of going to play tennis because my business I feel is important because I have a value about trying to do something positive to help my fellow human being. So it's this kind of almost fluoride in the water of just follow your bliss or you can do anything 
I like in one way, I agree with it completely. And in one way, I think it's a little dangerous and people have to find their path forward. I just hate it when you see people who feel like they fail because they're doing a job that's deeply meaningful to them and they have a lovely family life, but they always wanted to be a mountain climber and they didn't do it. And that's kind of a failure because they keep getting told you should just follow your bliss. Yeah. And the end is like you actually realized mountain climbing isn't aligned with your values. Well, and for most people, it should just stay a hobby. Yeah. And it's no failure. I was telling Danny's daughter last night, my freshman advisor in college, I was a music major. I didn't finish college, but I was studying music. And it turned out my freshman advisor was chairman of the music department. And I remember once I was like at the piano in his office and he said to me, you know, why, why don't you just do this computer thing? It seems like you're so passionate about it. And you can always play music, but you know, is that really what you want to do? And it really was insulting to me because I felt like what he was saying is you don't have the talent to be a musician was probably would have been true, but I'm not sure that's what he was saying. It took me a good 40 years to realize he was totally right. I love music. I spent my whole childhood playing music. You can see my piano behind me. I love music, but it isn't actually important to me. Like I would not choose to spend time at my piano instead of being with my family or doing something that's important for other people. People who are really committed musicians would. It's important. Yeah. It's important to their soul. And I love that. And I get the pleasure of learning from them and listening to them and playing with them. And that's fantastic. But this guy was right. It wasn't important. And I felt bad for decades. Like, oh, I didn't do it. Fortunately, as I got older, I got to the point where I was like, thank God I didn't do that. Did you regret dropping out of school? No. No, I'm super lucky with that. I mean, I started the company, you know, with my buddies like in my sophomore year and for, I did the company and work for one year and then I went on a leave of absence and they say, you know, some people take a semester off. I've taken 74 semesters off. I'm uh -huh. still on leave of absence. You, you think know, they're going to let you come back? I'm told that I can. I'm not That's certain that I'm going to find time for it, but I loved going to college. It was not an, an anti-college move. It was just I was busy doing this other stuff. And, and I'm fortunate because working in tech and being a dropout is kind of a credential. My sister used to tease me. She worked back in the day at, at I think, Anderson before it became Accenture. And she's like, they would never hire you. There, there was absolutely no way they'd ever look at your resume because you didn't finish college. But she likes saying because she did finish college. But she was probably right. They wouldn't ever hire me back then. But in the software industry, it's like, oh, this guy's for real. He's a dropout. Certainly working at Microsoft where Gates himself was part of that crowd, there, there was going to be no way that you could hold it against somebody. Yeah. I mean, actually, one, one of the first round investors of, of that company that I sold to Microsoft, they were the only venture capital investors in Microsoft. And I remember when they were deciding to invest, they, they said, yeah, we did some due diligence on you. And one guy pointed out that you had dropped out of college. And, and we said, well, we've done okay investing in firms run by college dropouts. So it was okay. I think today, it's a lot different today, right? A lot more openness to hiring people from different backgrounds. And where I work, we don't really even look at educational background unless somebody's straight out of a school program and we're looking for them as a new grad hire. But once you're a fuse in your career, who cares? 
Yeah. I mean, of course, that was just kind of a lazy shorthand to know who was smart. And it's true. It's not a very good way to figure it out. I mean, it's amazing when you think over the over the years how limited our view is you had to go to a good school and it was going to be somebody who was in your in your city and that was going to come into the office every day. And now it's our whole software teams in Ukraine. And they're unbelievable, great people. We've worked with them the whole life of the company. I'm not interested in their educational background. And if I looked at their resumes for the schools in Ukraine that they went to, it wouldn't mean anything to me. Are they great engineers? They're fantastic. How are you thinking about the next few years of your career and OG and all of that? Yeah. I mean, for me, it's just like the greatest luxury I could ever have is just to keep working on this business. So I'm just excited to grow it and see where it goes for all the reasons you and I talked about earlier. It's just incredibly rewarding to bring the impact that we do. And there's nothing categorically that I do now that I didn't do decades ago, managing people, writing strategy, designing software, negotiating contracts. like They're all the same things, but I'm glad to say that I'm constantly surprised how bad I was yesterday and like I'm better today. You know, it's it's that whole that whole thing where you, you write a paragraph and you come back and read it an hour later, you go, God, that was awful. Like how did yeah. how did I put that paragraph down an hour ago and think that was good? That to me, that sense of like, oh, I'm improving, I'm putting energy in and getting something out is what drives me. It really is a reflection of this concept of self-efficacy, which the psychologist Albert Bandura came up with, I think, in the 70s, this whole feeling of when you expend effort and see a positive result, then that gives you further incentive to keep working at it step by step to oversimplify self-efficacy. But you know, for me, I'm a little self-efficacy machine. Like it's just, yeah. it's so great. So, you know, I just want to keep learning and do it in the context of this mission. And I can't imagine anything better. It's a good place to be. Incredibly fortunate. Yeah. No doubt about it. So last question for somebody listening or watching who's earlier in their career, what's one bit of advice you would give them? Boy, there's so many things I could say. I'll pick this out because I think it's provocative. I think that some of the most important things you can do is knowing when to walk away along the lines of your earlier questions about follow your bliss and you can do anything. I think as a society, we sometimes have communicated that there's this universal value that you should always keep going. And that becomes pathological in a lot Mm -hmm. of cases. I mean, in the small sense, I'm sure you've seen this a thousand times, you're selling to an account, it's never going to close. These people, they're interested in talking, but they're never going to buy. Yeah. It's not a virtue to keep selling. You know, put it to bed and walk away and focus your energies elsewhere. And so it's true on small things like making a sale, and it's true on big things with the business. This business, OG Life Lab, I did another version of this business targeting high school students. That's how I wanted to do it at first. And mm-hmm. I worked with a wonderful group of talented people, and we opened an in person learning center here in Northern California. It just didn't work. And I was pretty proud that A, we made a great effort. We really tried. And then B, we were able to make the call and just say, you know what? It didn't work. Maybe at another time it would work. Maybe with a ton of more money, it would work, but we don't know how to make it work. And that became kind of the little seed that became the business we have today, working with businesses that is thriving. Yeah. I'd say people early in your career, be willing 
Like to take a business idea and treat it like a Kleenex. You use it once and you throw it out. Live to fight another day. So that's just a, a random idea that comes to mind. I'm sure have you seen that in your career? Well, I mean, as you were saying that, the first thing that leapt to mind for me is people who stay in their jobs too long. And funnily enough, I was literally writing a little blog for a newsletter that we'll send out later this week that talks about the fact that you got to not overstay, right? And some of my biggest mistakes career-wise were staying in places that just had gone past their prime, right? And just feeling like I can make this work or for whatever reason, didn't want to walk away, didn't want to feel like I was quitting. And you can do that about a job. You can do that about a business idea. You can do it about a relationship. You can do it about a lot of things. As you say, there is just a time when the right answer is to walk away and to make peace with it and move on with your life. Yeah. I mean, as you said that, what I thought is don't confuse choosing for quitting. Like you have a job, it's played out. When I left Microsoft, my boss at the time told him I was leaving and he got really angry with me and you're quitting and all this stuff. And it was like, yeah. I mean, I understand from your perspective, I'm letting you down. You thought you had a job filled and now you don't. So I get it. There was never any doubt that I was making the right decision. So I think hopefully people can feel the kind of freedom of just saying, hey, that was good. And sometimes there's one entrepreneur I worked with, great guy up in Seattle, has worked on a business for years. And I looked it up once, the number of inventions Thomas Edison just kind of walked away from. He had like talking doll products and all kinds of crazy stuff that were unbelievable failures. I'm no expert on the history of Edison, but my sense is part of his magic was he could work really hard on something, maybe not launch it at all, or maybe launch it and it wouldn't solve, it wouldn't succeed. And he'd just go on to the next thing. But if he's stuck on the first one for 12 years, we never would have gotten all the other stuff. So make the choice. So, anyways. Lots to think about for sure about how to grow and change and move things forward. The more people can have a sense of freedom to just think, hey, whatever logic tells me and my gut tells me, it's okay to follow it. It was very good getting some time together. I'm glad Danny introduced us, Matt. You can hear your passion for what you're doing right now, which is great. And it's certainly what motivates me. For me, this is a side project, but one that I put a fair amount of spare moments into. So with a lot of the same intent, right? To just help people figure out how to be better versions of themselves and have greater career fulfillment than they're otherwise going to have. So I appreciate the time that you gave and all of your insights and stories about what you've done over the years. Well, it's great fun. And I know that we are, like to say, fellow travelers trying to find a way to help people have a richer life, a richer career. And it's really exciting to see what you're doing. So Glad it could be a small part of it. Great. I appreciate it. I want to thank Matt for joining me today to discuss OG Life Lab, his broader entrepreneurial journey, what he's learned along the way. And if you're ready to take control of your career, you can visit pathwise.io. If you'd like more regular career insights, you can become a Pathwise member. Basic membership is free. You can also sign up on the website or the Pathwise newsletter and follow Pathwise on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. Thanks. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to Career Sessions, Career Lessons. We hope the nuggets of wisdom shared today help guide your path to the successful career of your dreams. This podcast series is part of Pathwise.io, which is here to help you live the career you want. We provide a comprehensive mix of career and professional development events, insights, tools, and exercises backed by a group of leading coaches and other career management experts. 
If you aspire to something more or just something different in your career, join us at pathwise.io. You can find us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. See you again on the next episode.